0: So today we're going to talk, I'm going to talk about uh, repentance and restoration, like what I did the last time. So the last time I only had uh, like eight slides, apparently I've only gone through four of them only. <laughs> so today I'm going to continue with the rest of them. So just a little uh, recap, uh, we are going to do an exposition of Psalms 51. So let me read Psalms 51 while the other people start rolling in. If you'd like to turn to, with me to Psalm 51, let's go through the whole chapter. So in Psalm 51, it says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And in verse 1, it says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin." For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. O perch me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow." Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. And so there's Psalm 51, and I remember the last time I put a marker, a mass on it, and it's still there. Yay, so I have it here. So a little bit of introduction from the last time. Um, If you remember this verse, it's Satan in the beginning. It's written after Nathan the prophet confronted David in his sin with murder and adultery. So it's a pretty heavy topic. And like, uh, I think it's very applicable to our life. Because a lot of times, this is something that we kind of need as we go through the spiritual life, where we fall in sin and we come back. And I think this is really interesting, it's looking how David approached God and how David understood the heart of God and why he's called the man after God's own heart. And so we talk about verse 1 through 6. It's a, a lot about confession. And with confession, it's a lot about understanding who God is. And from this, we see God is a forgiving father. So it's, it's kind of challenging a lot of times because um, sometimes like our, our notions of father may not be that forgiving <laughs> for some of, some of us. And, and it's, a lot of times, it's hard to shake off some of these thoughts that we have from previous well, well, I guess like we have from life itself. But I guess like as we come to become a Christian, like we are given a new life, and we come to know who God the Father is, and we also come to know who he, what His heart is like. And I think this kind of changes a lot of things as we come approach to Him in confession, because we know that God our Father will surely forgive us when we come to Him, and that Christ has died on the cross so that we may have life and life more abundantly. And so, like, uh, next part, it's uh, verse 7 through 10. We, we kind of see uh, David go through a period of uh, repentance. I think it's kind of amazing in some ways because in this you kind of see a little bit foreshadowing as he talks, foreshadowing Christ as he begins to talk about this part of the verse. Like some of the work that Christ is going to do. I guess that's really by the grace of the Holy Spirit that's giving him this revelation about Christ at this point, even when Christ is not born yet. And more amazingly, I got Christ come from the line of David. So pretty cool. Mm-hmm. But I, will go, I guess today we will continue on with the rest of the verse from verse 11 through 19. So I'll try to go a little faster so that I don't hang up with one slide and not finish so in the last two parts, like, uh, I, I guess we can kind of break it down to a part of restoration and a part of being kingdom-mindedness. So if we go to uh, the next few parts in restoration. So in this, it's uh, verse 11 through 17. And it's the part where it goes, Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. So I guess like with this, I like, we really see David. He has a big dependence on the Holy Spirit. He understands what the Holy Spirit work is, and without this, like, really death ensues. So I guess how much more often like we should be like this too. We should realize the importance of the Holy Spirit in our life. I think this is something that's like, very lacking in our culture. Like we don't really yearn, and we don't really. Realize we don't really see the importance of the Holy Spirit and his work that's happening within our lives. But you see here, like what David says, is he says, um, Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit away from me. I think this is something very important here. I think a lot of times, as we, like when we've seen this, something we should really realize, like every time we've seen. Since we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, I think it saddens God to a certain extent. And this is what David's saying here is i like, cast me not away from your presence because he knows how important that is. And he says, Take not your Holy Spirit away from me. Because he realized that the Holy Spirit is his sustenance in life. The Holy Spirit enables him to do the work of God, enables him to carry on his life. And I think it's also interesting that David from Young, it's a, if you would say anything about its youth, it's really a worshiper. Like the Bible talks a lot about in other Psalms where he lays down in pastures, where he plays his instruments, and where he worships God, and where he fights his battles. I think it's in this kind of moments that he really begins to see, begin to commune with the Holy Spirit. Begin to see the importance of the Holy Spirit in his life. And I think for us, also, like uh, being in the Christian life, there's something that's gonna be some, uh, I would say, something daily as we walk this journey is to commune with God, is to commune with the Holy Spirit, to understand the heart of the Holy Spirit, to understand the heart of God, and to tune your ears to his voice or tune your heart to his voice. And I think that's something important. I think I, that's something that it's a journey, it's a relationship too. So I think like, uh, it seems here that David is very aware of this. And uh, the presence of God is something that he carries with him, that he really needs every single moment of his life. So in the next uh, few verses, in verse 12, 12 through 15, it says to uh, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. So an interesting note here is when we talk about the joy of salvation so I would say like the joy of salvation really comes with communing with God. like I guess like many of you probably have this kind of experience as you come sometimes when you enter the presence of God that nothing else matters. And I would say like um and sometimes you feel a certain kind of joy that's unexplainable, that's only with coming in to worship, coming in to prayer. And sometimes there's also like a passion that wells up inside. And I would say like this this is like a result of a lot of times communing with God. And I would say also like a, this is almost like a glimpse of heaven on earth. So I thought it's kind of interesting too. And if we take a look at Philippians 3 verse 8 through 10. And the power of his resurrection, and may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death. And we see this in the New Testament, too in Paul's life, too. this joy of the salvation, from knowing God, and it makes everything feel like it's nothing. It's rubbish. And I would say, that, that's the worth of knowing Christ, God. Uh, I think there's also a verse that says um, that God has set eternity in our hearts. And I think it's a pretty interesting verse here because it's, uh, it's almost when God made us, it almost seems like he made us with a need for him. It's almost like a jigsaw puzzle with one missing piece. You <laughs> know, a lot of times when we have one missing piece, oh, that's annoying, where's that one missing piece there? I would say that's kind of in this way when God form us and shape us, there's this one missing piece that only can be filled by him. <laughs> But I would say the challenge of this world is a lot of times we try to feel this missing piece with something else. Sometimes we try to find love somewhere else. We kind of find love through other relationships. We kind of find love through online. There's something new nowadays. We kind of find love and bonding through friends or something like this. Or uh, making them like you more. But i would say this miss, missing piece, a lot of times, can only die, be filled by God. And you can, you, can, you can do however how much you want by filling it with other kind of love, but you'll never be fulfilled. And you see, it's only really the love of Christ is able to fill this gap. It begin to bridge, to link your whole self together, so that you, you might feel complete. And i would also so say, that's almost like a glimpse of heaven again or so. So I'll talk about this a a little later, but not too long ago I heard this sermon that's on heaven. I thought it was really good, but let's come to it a bit later. We'll talk about assurance. When you have the joy of salvation, it also brings assurance too. And we'll take a look at John 15, verse 9 through 13. It says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love, if you keep my commandments. You will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no other than this, than someone to lay down his life for his friends. I say this, this is assurance that God has given to us that he indeed loves all of you guys here, every single one of you. And it's really because of this love that he has for us that compels us, that empowers us to do his work. And I also think it's interesting because a lot of times this is what I think. I don't know if it's true or not, but you can really only love to the degree that you are loved. I think in life that's kind of what we do too. Uh, We... I would say like uh, human beings, uh, we probably are not super creative. We are creative, but not super creative like that. In a lot of times, we kind of make something new out of something that we already know. I would say love, it's almost similar in this sense, like uh, to the degree that we know how, what love, true love is, that's also the degree that we are able to love other people as well. I think this plays out in a lot of ways. And I also think this is also another challenge uh, where another place where the enemy can come and attack. Because the enemy can kind of use your experiences from the past to hold you back. Because I would say God's love is always out there. But the challenge is how much can we accept this love? And how much can we encompass it? And how much can we experience it from God? so here I would say like a rejection is often the enemy's strategy to stop us from thinking about God's love, to stop us from knowing God's love. Let's take a look at Luke 10, verse 18 through 20. It says here, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants, and he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and the shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and it's found. And they begin to celebrate. In the passage you just read from Luke 15? That's right. Actually, you're right. I read the wrong verse. It's actually Luke 10. No wonder I thought it was kind of strange there. So it's Luke 10, it says, uh, And then he said to me, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you the authority to threat on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of an enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So when it comes to rejection, I would say like uh, the word of God that said he saw Satan fall like lightning, and behold, I've given you the authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, and the power over the enemy. So I think this verse brings comfort because this verse tells us that we, as children of God, we have the authority to break the work of Satan. When the work of Satan comes, when the thoughts, evil thoughts come, we are able to use the Word of God to break all this. And that's where I'm going. So you are right; that verse is correct. I'm wrong yeah i I read the wrong verse, <laughs> oh well, let's continue on uh I also say with our joy of our salvation, it's also one part of it is also with heaven, and I'd say when we talk about heaven, we always talk about weddings in some ways mm-hmm. <laughs> because when it comes to the joy of salvation. The joy that we have on earth, I'll say a lot of times, it's it's like courting in some ways. In the sense that we know God and we kind of commune. I don't know how many of you have uh, experienced with courting, probably quite a number of you guys. But you know when you're courting, you always have the desire to see the person. You have the desire, oh, you'll be great when we are married finally. You always have this thought that, oh, when we live together, you'll be great and I would say the days on Earth is kind of similar to, in some ways, that as we commune with God, like, oh, this, when God sends His presence, when experience his presence, we're, "Oh, this is great, Oh God, how, how much more will it be in the very end when you come?" And that's why I would say it's kind of like a wedding in some ways, that we kind of prepare, these days that we have on earth, it's a preparation, a time of preparation, that we begin to prepare. As we know that this like a wedding feast is coming in the end. And as the wedding comes, there will be much joy and, and celebration. And this also compels us to uh share the gospel with other people. A lot of times in weddings like a uh, USN, you your wedding invites your friends and your families because you are excited. And I'll say very similar in, in some fashion to like a uh, when we have the joy of our salvation, like you're excited that you want to share the gospel to other people as well because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, as Paul said. Mm-hmm. And here's kind of where I come back to saying, um, uh, recently I heard this uh, podcast about heaven that I thought it was really cool. Because in this, uh, the preacher was saying, like, uh, heaven is a place where, where you experience Christ, like when you first enter heaven, you think it's, oh, it's great. But then I think the cool part that really struck me that you were saying was, it's not the end because like, it gets better every single day. And it gets better and better and better and better and better. And I'd say it's a little bit mind-blowing because there's nothing that's on earth that can be compared to this. Everything on earth that we have experienced to a certain point, it's like, ah, I'm kind of used to it. It's like some of you guys know, like, I came from Buffalo. Mm-hmm. And in Buffalo, there's Niagara Falls there. And everybody says, oh, I want to go and see this Niagara Falls. It looks cool. But for me, it's like, eh. <laughs> I pass by it by every single other, every, every other month. It's like, oh, it's just a waterfall. <laughs> But I think it's interesting. It's or even like when we go to an amusement park, the first time you go to a place, we're like, oh, this is great, and this is fun. Then when you go explore the park, you're like, oh, this this is even better. This is an even better roller coaster. But up to a certain point, it's like ah, that's that's as good as it's get. But I would say like uh in heaven, it's different in the sense that the first day you enter, you would be like, whoa, this is great. This is the best thing I ever had. Then the next day, whoa, this is even better. Then it kind of keeps going on, so on and so forth, and never ends. And that's kind of mind-blowing. I, I, I sometimes wonder, it's like, oh, can my heart take it? <laughs> it's like, "Wow, that's so much excitement every single day. And that's something to compel us to live our days on earth and whenever there's hardships, like the, this, the thought of heaven should compel us to persist through hardships because we know that someday we are coming to this like a communion with God. It's going to be better and better and better every single day that whatever we are suffering today, it's going to be temporary. It's not going to be lasting. And of course, having the joy of our salvation also causes us to praise God and to give him thanksgiving. And I think there's something important too because I, I would say a lot of times when we sin, it's difficult to praise God. Like Instead, in we often want to go the other direction. We have to well, in our sadness. You know, say, oh God, like I sinned again. I'm worthless. While that is all good, that's, that's not bad but i think david go a further step to say oh god i praise you for who you are i praise you that you have forgiven me i praise you that you are a kind father like david almost immediately realizes the attributes of god he realizes god his father will forgive him and god his father it's a tender hearted god father So as we continue on, let's see. It's, uh, it's really when we come before God, we have to fill our lips with the praise of God. We have to proclaim the goodness of God also. And this, this works uh, wonders in silencing the enemy's thoughts, the enemy's voices in your head. And if you take a look at Psalms 8 verse 2, it says... Uh, Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. And you see, like some a lot of times, like a praise has this effect as you begin to praise God, even when we are down, and even when you don't feel like it, you begin to silence the enemy's voice within yourself. As Paul also says, like you break down every lofty thought uh, or every unworthy thought against Christ. I'm probably quoting it kind of wrong, but you know which verse I'm talking about. That we continue to remind ourselves of the goodness of God so that we we begin to break this uh, thought that's that's coming in, that's negative, that's uh, bringing accusations against God, bringing accusations against the people of God. And the next few verses from verse 16 and 17, let's continue and take a look. It says, For you will not delight in sacrifices, or I will give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And I think it's interesting, like when we took a look at the perspective from the outsider versus the father. So this is where I read the wrong verse just now. But let's read this, uh, let's read Luke 15, verse 18 to 24. It's a pretty familiar one. It's a, the a prodigal son, the parable about the prodigal son. But I think this time, instead of uh, focusing on the son himself, let's read this verse while focusing on the father. Like, let's take the position of the father instead of the position of the son, and let's, take, let's read it. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Bring quickly the best robes and put it on him, and put a ring on its hand and a shoe on its feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and it's alive again. He was lost and it's found. And they begin to celebrate. So I think this verse kind of changed a little bit when you kind of look in the perspective of the father. Like you see, you see the father's heart for his son for a lost son it says here like uh, the father began to have compassion and he saw his son coming in from a distance and I think this is kind of different because you see the heart of the father like God the father is, is sim- same in this way in that he's not here to condemn us but instead he's kind of dis- similar in that when he saw us afar away He'll come and embrace us. And I think that's amazing. And that also gives us encouragement, give us a hope. And there's a we'll talk about here. It's uh when we when you talk about the son, when he comes before the father, you see. Um, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And I've sinned against heaven and before you. And and this, I would say, is like a a broken spirit and having a broken and contrite heart. I I would say a lot of times in uh, the Christian life, we come to to this place where you have, you've sinned enough that you begin to have this broken spirit. I think a lot of times it's the grace of God to bring us to a point of time where you feel like uh, there's nothing much more you can do, that you're kind of helpless, that you need God to do a miracle. I would say that, that's almost what it means to have a contrite heart, to have a, to have a broken spirit, that you come to acknowledge God that He's the only one that can do anything, to, to take you out of this situation. I would say in, in this, is, uh, I think God delights in this. And when David says, uh, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. It's this kind of uh, attitude that God will not despise. And it's this kind of attitude that is a sacrifice unto God. It's not the blood of bulls or the blood of animals or even the works that we are doing. But it's an inward attitude that is a sacrifice is pleasing unto God. So last us continue on on the last two verse, verse 18 and 19. It says, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. And we see David, in this last part, he talks about the kingdom of God, the consummation of his kingdom. And he talks about Zion. I would say in the Bible, Zion, a lot of times, it's an image for the kingdom of God. Let's take a look at Isaiah 61, verse 1 through 5. It's uh, one that you probably heard a lot. It says in Isaiah 61, The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a blessed, beautiful dress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning." The garment of praise instead of a vain spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations, they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tan your flocks, foreigners shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. So, here again, we see that a lot of times Zion is known as the kingdom of God in the Bible. And also, I think it's interesting when you talk about the right sacrifice here. And it's also interesting that they talk about bulls. So let's take a quick look at what bulls kind of signify in the Bible. Some verses that have bulls in them. So in Exodus 32, verse 4, it says, And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they say, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So in this verse, maybe you might refer to bull as God, some, some kind of deity. But let's see other verses, what it says. Uh, Numbers 23, verse 22. It says, God brings them out of Egypt and it's for them like the horns of a wild ox. Let's also take a look at verse 24 and, uh, chapter 24 and verse 8. It says, God brings him out of Egypt and for him like the horns of the wild oaks, ox again. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. So I think like, through this verse, you can see that the bull kind of represents like, strength. And I think a lot of times in, um, in ancient times, like, bull, like the bull, it's a pretty important animal because it does quite a lot of things. Like you can use it for food, you can use it to produce food. You can use it to like it has yeah, strength, so you can plow, mm-hmm. so you don't have to work yourself super hard. You can use the bull. So to a certain extent, a, a bull is also represents strength. It also represents life. So I think it's kind of interesting. That might be why sometimes like a God might refer to himself like a bull. That is the sustenance of life. That he's also the strength. But I think that another thing that uh, the bull brings out is also, it's its one of the animals where you can tame. And a lot of times when we think about bull, we also think about a certain kind of servitude, like a heart of a servant. So I would say, when we come to the right sacrifice, and uh, this. In Psalms 51, when it says, uh, "Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings; then bulls will be offered on your altar." I think this is, for me, at like what I think here, it's uh, it's talking about the kingdom of God. That as we progress, as we begin to build up strength as a community, that we begin to give all this unto God. That we begin to give God our strength. That we begin to give Him. Our, they begin to rely on him on our sustenance. We begin to give him the heart of our hearts as a servant. And that's the right sacrifices that's pleasing unto God. So here, the last part, talking, is so kind of, uh, I guess, have this positive eschatology. And uh, if you guys know, uh, if you guys have been around here enough, you know that eschatology, we're talking about the end times like what's in the very end. And also we use this word quite often when we talk about positive eschatology. And when we talk about positive eschatology, what we are trying to say here is uh, that days will become better and better and better. Mm-hmm. Like the kingdom of God will keep growing and keep growing and keep growing. i would say in Psalms, uh, 60, Isaiah 61, this is kind of what we see when you talk about uh, buildings, the walls of Jerusalem. And similarly here, it talks about do good and Zion, your good pleasure, and build up the walls of Jerusalem. Like there's this continual hope that things will get better and better. The kingdom of God will continue growing and growing and growing. And I thought it's kind of interesting like, uh, that in David's uh, kind of this writing, this confession before God, that he ends off with the kingdom of God. They say,s "Oh God, your kingdom will continually grow, like continue to help your people and continue to bring about more goodness." I'll say it's vastly different from uh, my confession. <laughs> I don't think I'll, I'll go through a lot of times. I don't think that's the first thing that will come to my mind. It's probably the last thing <laughs> that we can think about the kingdom of God when I'm suffering. So I guess like, uh, bringing everything together, i would tell like, you, uh, you see here David's heart in pursuing God. But it does not mean that you have to be perfect already. Instead, like uh, what you see here, I think it's interesting that David has just sinned not too long ago and just, was just being confronted. So you know that obviously David is not a perfect person. But then God still calls him a man after his own heart. And through these verses, through this passage, you kind of see why. You kind of see David's understanding of God and his desire to build his kingdom. It's always in his forefront of his uh, mind. And he's always quick to confess, repent, and to seek restoration. And I'll tell you, uh, this whole thing, it's it's always an active process. That it requires us. I think I believe I put an asterisk there. Because to a certain level, it's really all God. Amen. But a lot of times to us, in our perspective, it feels like we have to do something too. And it's also true that we do have to do something. But it is God that's working behind the scenes to pull the strings together. And we also have to recognize that the cause is fully bare by Christ. And if we ever sin, any kind of sin that we have it's against God and only God alone. It all comes back to him. And so in that regard, like if somebody do sin, if somebody is in a in, grievous sin, then to a certain extent, like, who are we to judge their sins? Right? Because he, when he sins, it's really sin against God. and It's against him that he sins. But I would say... Also, that God has given the keys to the the church, that the grace is dispensed through the church. And I think it's interesting when we kind of take a look at, um, in God's view, when somebody sinned and somebody is repenting, God views this person as righteous because of Christ's work. And as the victim himself, the person who sinned, where we should always seek forgiveness and restoration. And when it comes to the church role in this, it's to dispense forgiveness through grace and discipline, through church discipline. And discipline sounds like a scary word a lot of times, but I think discipline, instead of thinking of it as like a, maybe, a, well, I think, at least for me, when I think of discipline, I always think of a kid, as a cane. LAUGHTER but when we kind of think a bit further, like uh, like no parents want to hit their child for no reason. Like you hit your child because you want to bring them to better, in greater greatness. You want to change something that you see is wrong that will prevent them from attaining something in their future. And that's the role of discipline. And I think like, uh, for us a lot of times, like uh, because... We have received discipline. Nobody likes discipline at the moment of it. And it's always hard to put our mind in the things that's further, what, what discipline will bring out. I think it's, it's helpful when we kind of think of it that, that way, when we go through like times of trials and tribulations, that we see it's still God's goodness. They put us through this time so that we may become a better person. They may become prepared in this kingdom. I think that's a more hopeful thought then, oh, God, these times are difficult. Like, I can't handle it. Oh, I'm, I'm wretched. Man. I am. So I think I like, got uh, asked the people who uh, perhaps are uh, some of the people who uh, the, the sinner kind of sin against you, like you are the person being hurt. I think your role here is to forgive. Let's take a look at Romans 12, verse 14 through 21. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, and I'll repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you your heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And with saying all this, I would say it's not like forgiving. It's sometimes challenging. Especially when the sin is committed against you, but what I find a lot of times is uh, when you begin to continue to dwell on these thoughts, like, "Oh, this person is like hurting me," like you kind of keep growing and growing, and it, it, the form changes a lot of times too. In the starting, you may be like, "Oh, I'm hurt because of this." Then later you kind of go deeper and deeper into it in, in, that, in the sense that it's, it's strange, but you almost enjoy it when you start thinking about all this stuff. When you're thinking about how this person hurt you, it goes into this cycle and keeps going and going and going. And I've experienced that a lot of times in my life too, that when you begin to dwell on these thoughts of how people are hurting you, how you're being hurt, and when you think about it, then you can think about more paths. Then you think about what other ways you can get back at this person. It's kind of never-ending, and I would say, uh, in fact, a lot of times it consumes up a lot of your time thinking about all this stuff, and so I would say it's uh, to forgive. Sometimes it's not difficult, but it's our calling to forgive. And also, the Bible says that God has forgiven us. Also, but when we don't forgive others, then we also won't receive the the forgiveness. In some ways. <laughs> So I think it's important. Uh, I guess like, when we talk about restoration, uh, let's take a look at the next slide. Uh, I think it's an interesting case study. It's a persecution of Christians. So uh, in the years of 249-ish and uh, 200-ish, there was this time in under Empress Decius and Diocletian where the Christians are heavily persecuted and so uh, the, the historian uh, Eusebius, he wrote uh, like these governors, these uh, judges in those times where they were, judged, they were persecuting these Christians, they were tr- each county, like each, uh, you kind of call it county now, they're trying to outdo each other, how much they can torture somebody. So it's kind of bad. And if you read his account, you'll see it's, uh, it's pretty gruesome. Like uh, They'll try different ways to torture somebody. And they'll they come together and they'll talk about it. Then they'll say, oh, maybe I've done this even more. Then you just keep going on and on and on. So it's a tough time for Christians during those period of time. And in those times, one, one important uh, church issue was when you talk about the laps. <laughs> because when it comes to Emperor Decius and Diocletian, they are very against Christ. And those who are for, for Christ. And but one thing they were asking them to do is to renounce Christ. If you renounce Christ, you are safe. So it's a tough time for many Christians because now then you face this uh, challenge. If you renounce Christ, if you say you are not a Christian, then you might live. If you say you are for God, then you'll come under torture, you probably die more than likely. And so, after all this, after this emperors uh, died, one of them fell in battle. I think the other one just got out by other people trying to become emperors. Uh, it's, it's a big issue in church history because um, now the, the problem is, like, how do we deal with these people? They call them the left, those who have renounced Christ. So, this, uh, there was this theologian, it's called no, Novation. He said, uh, for this People who have denied Christ, there's absolutely no chance of coming back to the church. If you deny Christ, you're done. And so during those times, it's interesting because um, people, when they try to come back to the church again, they try to, those who have renounced Christ, they try to do things uh, like to hurt themselves so that they say, "I'm, I'm like a... I'm repentant. So it's kind of extreme to a certain extent. Some, some people even like uh, not eat for days to say, oh, I'm repentant. Like, please let me back to the church again. Some people hit themselves. Some people torture themselves and say, oh, please let me come back to the church again. And so you see here like a novation. He says like there's absolutely no restoration of also whatever. But on the other hand, there's Cyprian. And it says uh, on the, he had this writing, he said this book that says on the laps, and it says here, by asserting that those who made atonement to God, repenting of their shame and renewed, both of virtue and of faith, would with God's help make the church which they had lately sent glad and shall now deserve the Lord, not only of pardon, but the crown. I thought why I say here was great. So later we see also Novation. Uh, he was actually excommunicated from the church later. <laughs> so the, the council was uh, to take on the approach of Cyprian to let those come back again to the church. And I think that's something comforting to know because I think uh, in our days, in our days, too, like, uh, this also happened. Like when we sin, when we deny Christ, like what would the church do? I would say the church would take on the position to restore those who are left. And I would say that God also had given this authority onto the church to make this decision also to dispense forgiveness. And I also say like uh, the church, as a church, like uh, we are not like a slave driver that if you, if you sin or something, we are, when we come to church discipline, we are not there to, like, force your life out of you. But instead, like, our role here is really to dispense the grace of God, to help you see what the grace of God is like. I think that's, some, that's the role of church discipline a lot of times. When you hand, hand down, like, uh, tough things to do, it's not to persecute you further, but it's really to Help you to grow closer towards God. And that's church discipline. And the last part I'll tell you is it's setting our eyes on the kingdom of God. So I think it's kind of interesting, like a, I guess there's this analogy here. The kingdom of God, it's kind of like the end goal. You see, like that, the whole line there, it's like the kingdom of God from Christ all the way to consummation. <laughs> Then when we have a vision, it's almost like a, that red spot there. And our lifetime is maybe that red line. That small little red line. That's our lifetime. Of course, it's not drawn to scale because I don't know when it ends. So I would say like a, our calling, it's kind of like that red line. That's our life there. And when God gives us a vision, a lot of times from what we work towards, maybe this the next big checkpoint. Maybe it's what the Holy Spirit wanted to do in that season of time. And a lot of times that's our mission in life too. So I guess to end off today, uh, I'll read a quote from Tertullian that I thought was pretty good. He says, you can't undo anything you've already done, but you can face up to it. You can tell the truth. You can seek forgiveness and let God do the rest. And it's 10.22. Let us close in the time of prayer then. O Father, we thank you for who you are. For God, you are a forgiving Father, continually dispensing grace unto us. And Lord, Father, we thank you that we can come before your table to have communion with you, O oh Lord. And what a privilege it is to do so. And Lord, Father, we also thank you that you have continually given your presence. You continually help us to experience and encounter you in greater measures that compels us to do your work, O oh Lord. But, Lord, we continue to pray that we begin to propel us to the next thing, O oh Lord. That, and, Lord, Lord, help us to align to the things that you are doing and help us to hear your voice that we may continue to do the right thing, O oh Lord. O, oh Lord, although in this life we may fall many times, but it's by your grace, it's by the work that you have done on the cross that we are forgiven, that we restored to you, and, Lord, Father, we pray that you continue to put that in our minds as we overcome challenges and trials and tribulations, O oh Lord. O oh Lord, Father, we also pray that give us unity within the church. O oh Lord, Father, let, let there be no um, big arguments, let there be no separation. But, Lord, Father, join your church together in one, O oh Lord. O oh Lord, Father, we bring your presence down unto us and Lord, Father, help us to experience and encounter heaven on earth, O oh Lord. And Lord, Father, help us to cause our works and our praises to be a pleasing sacrifice unto you. And Lord, Father, I thank you for all this, and I pray all this in your name, and I say, Amen.